Exodus chapter 4, 18 to the end of the chapter. I'm reading it from the ESV. You can listen, you can follow along, you can find another translation on, a, on an app if you would like. Uh, there's many translations to this, and I think the ESV is okay. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers and sisters in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are now dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will strike down your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off the son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did all the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the, the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Okay. Believe it or not, I do my best to put myself in your shoes as I consider God's word, preaching, and teaching. Not necessarily specifically you, though I know many of you pretty well and your stories, but generally you as you come. That you have so many other places to be this morning, at this time, in this hour, afforded to us through family, through our work, through community, through opportunities. And no doubt, you wrestle every Sunday how you will spend, use, what we might say is our time, knowing it is God's, but how you will give unto that. Will you be here? I know that none of you read ahead this passage and said, we cannot miss this day in case Ben preaches it. I recognize when we come to passages in Scripture as we're trying to be faithful to, to receive and try to understand the full counsel of what we would say is God's Word, the Scriptures, that we will come to these kinds of passages and have to choose whether to simply miss them, disregard them, skip them, or toss them in the, what could we possibly do with this? What relevance does it even have to our life? And when we come up against a passage that not only touches on the intimate subject of circumcision and might make us furrow our brow or wonder, but brings into question so much else, 
has statements about our God or descriptions about our God that don't seem to resonate with the way that we want to worship our God, what will we do? How do we receive this? The Apostle Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and is useful for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. When Paul wrote that, he meant primarily the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what he's referring to. The, the, the second covenant or New Testament had yet to be written, was being developed, those stories. Paul was saying all of this story, including Exodus 4, is inspired by God and useful for us. Let's put that on trial today. How so, Paul, who probably knew his Hebrew scriptures better than any of us ever will, a a zealot Jew before his conversion unto Christianity, spoke or wrote at least could read and write fluently in Hebrew and likely had all of Exodus memorized word for word. And Paul says, all of this scripture is God-inspired and useful for teaching, for training. But begin with what is clear, and I want you to hold on to this as a lifeline as God continues to reveal his nature and his character, and then there's descriptions of God, and then his even self-testimony, at least as it's recorded. But I I want us to cling to what God is revealing in these last one and a half chapters about who he is. I am, he says. I am who I am, or could be translated, I will be who I will be. We Use the, 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 the Hebrew transliteration Yahweh to describe that self-declaration. I am, Moses. Who, who are you, God? I simply am. I will be who I will be. I'm the forever God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living. Uh, remember, we looked at Jesus pointing back to this passage and saying, this proves eternity. This proves the resurrection. That's how Jesus translated that declaration by God. God is the God of the living, not the dead. For to him, all are alive because of God's revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus reinterprets the ancient scriptures in a new light for us. Let's cling to this revelation of God and this ongoing one in verse 22 of chapter 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Cling to this, and there's more clearly to the passage that makes us struggle, but cling to this revelation that God, the eternal God, the creator of all things, The forever God, the Alpha and the Omega, is revealing himself as like a father to his children, a father who loves and pursues them. We do see that revelation and that theme running through the pages of Scripture, but we need to try, and I don't think we can fully, but try to understand how radical of a revelation that would have been in ancient times. This was a staunchly polytheistic Society. They believed in many different gods or forces or divine beings. The, the theologians of their day debated on how many there were, how, how to possibly appease them or curry their favor. But most of, of their faith in the supernatural realm, these gods were either impersonal beings or disinterested, self-glorifying beings that must in some way be appeased 
if we are to go on in life and find any form of favor or blessing. So a revelation by a person or a group of people that there's actually one God above them all, one supreme being, the great I am, who also is like a father who loves his children, that would have been a heretical belief, a not of the norm, a deviant declaration, and likely even dangerous to proclaim. If we can somehow begin to grasp that in context and cling to it, maybe it will be a lifeline as we see how God seems to be revealed in other light here. Just who is this God, we might ask as we read through some of these statements. The very same question that Moses asked, who are you? I guess that puts us in good company, at least in the story of Scripture. If we are still trying to wonder and grasp just who this God is. When Jesus would come, and also proclaim, picking up on this as core, that God is our Father. This is how he pursued a relationship with God. He even used the more intimate term, Abba, to pray in his most desperate moment, which could be translated like Daddy or like Papa. He not only modeled it, he taught it, as we've already prayed this morning. How shall we pray? Pray, God our Father. This is how we first are meant to address this incredible God that we serve through the lens of Jesus, through the eyes of Jesus. Even in his day, it was not readily believed and received. It was difficult. It was a challenge. Jesus made it even more explicit in so many of his teachings. Let me pick John chapter 5, verse 19 and following. John 5. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing of his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. Maybe until this week I read this passage as Jesus only referring to himself as the Son who does what the Father reveals. And I now believe Jesus had even more in mind with the whole story arc, that the true Son, and of course, in this time, masculine language is, is, is primarily used. I, I think we can clearly and solidly believe that Jesus means that any child of God can know the will of God who wants to reveal himself as a father and do what he does. I think it's both. I think he is, he's holding both. But when Jesus would consistently refer to himself as son, he's picking up this whole storyline. He is embodying the fulfillment of what God says all the way back in Exodus chapter 4, that Israel is like my son, my child, and I am their father. Jesus is now assuming that upon himself. He's fulfilling this narrative. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. The, the gospel writers didn't miss it. Maybe most famously, the gospel of Matthew opens this way, essentially. In Matthew chapter 2, 
verse 13. This is the story of Jesus' birth and some of the turmoil around that and his parents needing to flee to Egypt for a time. Here's how Matthew records it, Matthew 2, 13. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up and take this child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew is quoting the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I've called my son. From Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. That's the ancient narrative that we're seeing fulfilled from Exodus. That Hosea is declaring, speaking on behalf of God. Reminding the Israelites of their story. Reminding the Israelites of who their God is. Like a father to them as a son. Matthew comes along and says, in light of Jesus, Jesus is the Son. He's reinterpreting the Hebrew Scriptures and pointing to Jesus. That would have been heretical, blasphemous. He's saying, as you read and study the story of Exodus and the prophets, the only way to fully or get more close to fully understanding it is to see it through the lens of Jesus. Or to use another metaphor, Jesus is the key that unlocks our understanding to this. But this too is a radical thought that I do believe reveals much of how we engage the scriptures as a whole. That these New Testament, first century believers are coming along saying, oh my gosh, we believe in Jesus the Messiah. He is the one proclaimed through the story and pages of scripture. As he taught, we believe he has died and risen from the dead. We have seen him. That changes everything. That means we can reinterpret, they might say more correctly interpret, or even adding a, a fulfillment or a layer on top of what has already always been proclaimed, that now Jesus is the one. Jesus fulfills every narrative. While it was Israel as the, the son, that son struggled to believe to trust, to follow, to obey. We'll know, we see that throughout the story of Exodus. Sometimes responding with hope and faith and quick belief and response, and at other times, doubting, resisting. Let's go back. Threatening Moses. Why have you brought us here? Questioning God, creating their own golden calf, but not a high moment for them. That's their narrative throughout their history. We, as any of God's people, rightly resonate and say, that too is my life. That's the story of my family and my journey. Jesus comes and is the perfect son who listens, hears, obeys, never wavers, does not doubt, follows his father, takes upon himself all sin, all distrust, all rebellion, takes it to the cross and puts it to death forever, that we might live in favor with God, that we might come confidently to God and draw near to him. I think it's a powerful revelation as we see 
the living word of God, and we come to try to wrestle with it, understand it, and make meaning of it, we've got some big things that we can cling to as lifelines. That Jesus looked to these pa- this passage, and certainly we don't have all of Jesus' teaching. Maybe he went much more in depth, but he looked to passages in Scripture and grabbed out core meanings and emphasized them and taught them above all and said, hold on to these. And may we also rightly do the same, not to dismiss and say, what, how do we interact with these harder parts of the story, but to recognize that we have those that have gone before us who have done much of this same wrestling, this same work to come to grasp and to understand the fullness of the story. So here, there's your lifeline as we wade into the weeds a little bit, perhaps. Moses, in this point of the story, has met with God at the burning bush. Now he says, I'm going to go back to my father-in-law Jethro and ask his leave, essentially, his blessing, because uh, certainly he worked for the, the family and was relied upon. And he says to, to Jethro, please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. There's our first problem with the passage. Is that why Moses was going back to Egypt? Why not tell the full truth? God is sending me on a rescue mission, a deliverance mission. Why? Is he embarrassed to say it? Does he not believe it himself? Perhaps this is Moses' full truth. Listen, I'm not going to win a debate against God, okay? God wins. He's sending me. I'm going. I don't know how that's going to turn out. So Jethro I'm going to go check on my family, my people. That probably was true. He probably was going to go do that. Maybe along the way, let's see how that goes. Let's see what happens. See if any doors open. Maybe I'll be able to connect with the elders. Maybe I'll throw my stick on the, on the ground. We don't know. We can't get into the mind of, of Moses here in this moment, but it seems that he is still in this place of wrestling to fully come to believe and trust God. That's a storyline that we see in Moses. Remember, Moses is not the hero of the story. God is. We can engage the story through the lens of Moses. I don't, I don't want to put my life on the line for something I'm not even certain of, for a God I'm still trying to figure out. But would our journey be the same as we walk by faith? Perhaps that potential interpretation would shed light on what happens next in the story. Verse 24, on the way at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. This is the NIV. I read the ESV that said sought to kill him. Neither is a great translation in my opinion. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off his... Let me me retranslate this if you're following along. It's, It's much more vague in the Hebrew. Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off his foreskin and touched his feet with it. Feet in this, and that's a weird Hebrew word, could also mean genitals. Just get it out there. And said, truly, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. This event, captured in three verses, has thoroughly confused scholars throughout the centuries to multiple interpretations. And if you have read through this story, I wonder what you do with it. Do you just skip past it? Do you go up? Or do you shake your head and say, there is, there must be much more of a backstory to this that we're not given. That's where I kind of land. And I think that is probably an accurate place. 
There's some terse descriptions of many events. Remember, most of Jewish history would have been an oral tradition passed down, stories passed down until they were fully recorded. And sometimes as stories were later edited, other things were added and some things removed. That's how stories developed until they were kind of canonized, we might say. This is it. We're sticking with this version. And really, we have this unchanged throughout the millennia. And we could pause when we come to passages like this and say, Amazing that we have a scripture, a Bible that has been unchanged, that hasn't, been, it hasn't come along and edited out three verses like this and said, that just does not fit. They completely could be removed and change nothing in the story. No major themes, at least. So likely, at least for those ancient writers, there was a backstory that they assumed everyone knew. That when they said it this way, their first hearers would say, Oh, yeah, I remember hearing about that. Here's the backstory. They would have filled in the gaps. We don't have that. We don't have the backstory of what is possibly going on here. And it takes an incredible amount of work and study throughout the the full story to try to get to a place of at least saying, could it be this as we fill in the narrative? That's what good scholarship tried to do. There's no clean answers for this. I can go back to the history with Abraham and even the first covenant that required circumcision. I can't remember who who first said when you start to talk about anything in the Bible, you have to talk about everything and have to do it in 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. How do we do this? So we're up against it when we come to passages like this, recognizing it is a fluid story, recognizing that in in some ways shaking our heads, saying, I think there must be much more of a backstory that I don't fully grasp. Does that impact how I engage the rest of the story? Maybe not. And we trust that there there was more, and we can move on. Even as strange as this passage is, there's other parts of the whole story that may be stranger and more challenging for us that we can't easily just move past because they become recurring things. Now, you're like, are you going to say anything? Gary, are you going to give me anything that could have it could help me not just skip past this or put X, X through it in my Bible every time I want to read through Exodus again. I think in the larger story context, uh, we have to bring that in, in our immediate story context. That Moses was wrestling with God, coming to faith and belief in God. And if there's a backstory that we don't know, we remember that Moses was saved as a baby. His mom protected him, likely never circumcised him, maybe having the plan that could someone else rescue him and adopt him. It's possible that Moses himself had never been circumcised, nor his sons, which would make sense, marrying into a foreign family where that practice would have been not even understood potentially or considered barbaric. And why, why fight that battle? That at some point, as Moses is being called into God's service. We see throughout the story of Scripture when when people, individuals and groups, are called into God's service, they reaffirm covenant. There's some form of confirmation of they will trust and follow God. And often it's connected with circumcision. It's a strange and intimate practice. I can't go into the full symbolism of it. There is. It's also physical. There's much to it. But if we see that full arc that, and then have the missing gap in the story that would have been assumed for, for most Jews that, oh, Moses has now been called to this new thing, to, do, to, to serve God and lead his people, he would have had to reestablish covenant, 
We've lost that in the story. And part of that would have been circumcising all the males in your household. And here we have an example of Moses has not done it. He's on the way to following God. He's on the journey. He's going, still wrestling with how much I think he's going to be truly faithful to it. He hasn't followed God's command. So God shows up and stops him. Moses, do you trust me or not? You don't get to do it part way. I'm reading into the story, and I think I can do that because of the word translated, God showed up and tried to kill Moses. It's a bad translation. God showed up and sought to kill Moses, I think is a bad translation. It's a tricky, simple Hebrew word that has many possible translations to it. It can also mean something quite different. It can mean call or demand. And if we read that passage with that potential interpretation, God showed up and demanded Moses' life. He called for Moses' life. Maybe his actual life, maybe his very life, but he, he stopped Moses. No, Moses, here it is. You're all in or you're not all in. And this is a part of it at this time. Your life or not. And Zipporah steps in. Almost, I can see her saying, it was me, God. God's now, I think God is now calling Zipporah to this work as well. I did not believe. I resisted. I was not going to do that to my kids. But I now see you. And we've seen throughout the story, and we, can, we still will, that God is like a force and a, a dangerous power, like a dangerous fire. And the closer you get to him, it's threatening because of the nature of who he is. God does, his anger does burn and get kindled. I'm, I'm not going to deal with that one now or ignore it. But a lot of times in Scripture that we cannot draw near, these people cannot draw near to God without fear because of the very nature of who he is. God shows up and is going to take life if he keeps drawing near. Zipporah knows what she's supposed to do, knows what she hasn't done. And it's confusing with the language, how she, she, what, she circumcises and touches her own son or Moses or not, or what happens. Somehow, God says, okay, he leaves him. You've done it. That's the best I've got. You might not be satisfied with it, and I don't blame you. And there would be many scholars who would have a different interpretation. I told you I wasn't going to shy away. Other parts, that gives me the freedom, I believe, to move more quickly through. We need to wrestle and engage at a deep level with all of God's Word. And yet, I don't know that that story is the hardest part of this passage. I think there's some explanation of it. I think as we get into the, the next couple pieces of it, it challenges us even more. Verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart. I think that's incredibly more difficult than what we just walked through. Compare this to previously, Exodus 3, 19. God says, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I, I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. God knows a mighty hand must come. Pharaoh is, is going to need that in order to, to release him. And then late, just a little bit later, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And that becomes a recurring thing. Whereas these previous three verses about this event that's just uncertain, we can 
wrestle with, maybe to the degree that I just did, maybe even less, and say, okay, there's more to the story. It's okay. I can set it aside. I still trust God. But this one calls into question the character and nature of God. And we'll see that again and again in the story. Is God hardening hearts? Is God choosing ahead of time who will follow him and who will resist? And is he controlling hearts? This has been a raging debate across the millennia, has split churches and denominations, which have not maybe directly because of this doctrine, but indirectly the uncertainty of it has, has led to violence and blood being shed. Who is our God and how do we respond to him? While trying to cling to the lifeline of, of God as father who loves and cares for his children, we come up against these other revelations in Scripture that say, just who is this God? Not a small matter. And because it's a recurring theme, and looking at our time and looking at your faces, maybe we'll touch into it as we move on in the story. I have spent countless hours wrestling and studying with this one. Maybe you have as well. You don't have to go to Bible school or have a seminary degree to, to wrestle with this. You just have to be a Bible student. I'm still inclined toward two interpretations and open to say, I don't fully know. And I think that's okay. I think we're led there. In fact, that's my first interpretation as we see Scripture and try to rightly understand it. We're confronted with paradoxes so that we would have to answer the question, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. We'll see through the story that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Well, did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. The answer is yes to both. It is a paradox, and I think paradox is placeholder for understanding or for truth that one day we will come to see. Now, 